Hi, everybody. My name is Kalinga, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here and uh, to be sober and to have awakened this morning with back to the front seat of my car. It's the way I woke up a lot before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I didn't come here uh, to find a self-help program. And I didn't come here to quit drinking because uh, I had long ago given up the idea that uh, I could do that or that I could live without drinking. Uh, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous to learn to be a bag lady. And that's what I thought I would find here is the losers. And uh, I look around this room today and when I came here yesterday and around my home group, and wherever I go in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I see the real winners, the people who are living sober. I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you know, if you think it's anything else, they've been lying to you. It's a way to seek and find God, a God that can help you solve your problems, and live. And that's not the way I thought when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I got sober in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I detoxed in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I found a new life here. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, tells us in the doctor's opinion that alcoholics of uh, our type, my type, uh, no frothy emotional appeal is going to cut it, you know? <laughs> no way. Uh, we have to have something of substance that will help us recreate our lives. Uh, I didn't have one left when I got here, and I was given a whole new life. So uh, I'm real glad to be here. Uh, I'm single. That's, you know, exciting. Sometimes it's so exciting, it's desperate. <laughs> I was sitting around today and I thought, you know, we are really courageous people. Either that or we're just as crazy as when we got here. Because, you know, you hear the word single and you think, all the rest leaves, right? Southern California, alcoholic. You think, God, single, we got to do that. You know, we got to do it. What are we going to do? How am I going to do it? You know, sober? We're doing it. I learned at Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, my M.O. when I got here was, you know, when I did my fourth step, I did all the, you know, the like in the book, and then my sponsor pulled a, you know, real trick on me. She says, well, now we're going to list your fears. I said, wait a minute. I did all this other stuff here. She says, yeah, but it says we, we, took a, we wrote down our fears. And, you know, my M.O. all my life was, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm just terrified, but I'm not afraid of anything. And uh, here we are trying to interact, <laughs> you know, as something, really something if you think about it a minute. Try not to think longer. <laughs> so here I am. If I am nothing else, I am an example of a loving God, you know, not a vindictive one, 
and of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, vigorously applied. <laughs> and uh, the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where it is. That's where the instructions are. You know, when I got here, uh, I couldn't have hit a bull in the ass with a handful of rice, and I didn't know it. I mean, I was a sick cookie. But uh, I was here a while, and I, you know, the steps were on the wall, and I read them, and I agreed with them. You know, that's what I did was agree with them. <laughs> thought, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and I was fortunate enough to have a sponsor who not only agreed with them, who took the steps and suggested in her own inevitable way that I do the same thing. I think that happens for many of us. Uh, we come to Alcoholics Anonymous and we find the fellowship and uh, we agree with the steps and that's as far as we get and uh, we live in fear. Uh, I don't want to live in fear, I want to be free and I'm free. I wanted to be free all my life and I wanted to have fun and I'll tell you how I went about it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I was like and what happened and what I'm like today. I'm a native uh, Angelino uh, and uh, born and raised in California. My father is a Swede, big Swede, born uh, the first one born on this side of the ocean. My mother's an American Indian. And uh, I tell you that, so uh, we're here to learn. This is what an Indian and a Swede produces. You got it right here. I'm one of uh, three girls. I'm the eldest. And I have two sisters that are really square shooters. You know, they had curtains on their windows. They got married. They had babies. Uh, they never undressed publicly <laughs> or uh, got kicked out of the uh, alcoholism unit at the L.A. County Hospital. <clears throat> They're, you know... And my mother and father don't drink. I wish my mother would take a shooter every now and then. <laughs> you know, just help her, I thought. But she's not an alcoholic either. So uh, I can't blame them. I was brought up with good morals. We were poor. I used to say we were economically deprived. Sounded better. We were just dirt poor. And uh, I grew up living in public parks and, you know, and storefronts and stuff, and my folks were good, hard-working people. They went to work every day. Uh, I went to work when I was nine years old. Uh, everyone in my family did. We needed the money. I grew up in a little town called Tahunga. It's, got, it's enough to make you want to drink. I was kind of a little resort up in the mountains. Everybody there had asthma or tuberculosis. Um, I didn't, and I, you know, here in AA, I felt different. I felt different because I was different. I was real different. I was, you know, just bizarre is what I was. And uh, I grew up there wanting to get the hell out of Tahunga and make enough money and get enough stuff that I wouldn't feel like I felt most of the time on the inside, angry and full of fear and, and uh, full of resentment about my lot in life. And I knew that the answer for me was enough money and reaching a position of power and uh, living in the right house, driving the right cars, knowing the right people. I had my first drink when I was 16 years old. Uh, I was working at a factory, and uh, 
The women I rode to work with were some older than I, and it was my first payday, and uh, they said, we're going to stop at a little place called The Bright Spot and, uh, and uh, cash our paychecks. I didn't know what alcohol was. Uh, when you're living in a public park, your parents don't come home and have cocktails, trust me. <laughs> uh, and uh, I never knew what alcohol was. I didn't know what you called it. Uh, I'd never been in a bar. And I... And it, even at that, when they pulled up into that gravel parking lot, you know, uh, I got out. I was a bar drinker. I loved bars. Uh, that night I went into my first one and I, I loved it. You know, I loved the dark light, the dim, I loved dim light. If I had my way, the sun would have a dimmer on it. We'd just dim that sucker down. Dim light. And, uh, big mirror, you know, and it was a working man's bar. That's the kind of bar I liked. Long after I was able to drink in the, in what I called the velvet sewers, where they charged you more and gave you less, and there was a maid in the ladies' room. When I really wanted to get it, when I really wanted to get there, I went to places like Vince Dundee's Knockout, and uh, the Intermezzo, <laughs> and the Spar, and Soper's Wind and Sea, and uh, the Galloping Lady and the blue fox, because that's where the working people went, and we drank. That's where I learned to drink. That night, we went in there, you know, and I, it was smoke-filled and dim, and the bar, and the glasses, and, uh, you know, the, that pine saw smell that wafts out from the men's room. Love it. The bartender was just coming off a bad one, you know, and a lot of old spice on, and his hands were a little shaky, hair all slicked back, zircon cufflinks my kind of place you know you give me a give me a little whiff of bourbon and uh that old spice and i'm home i mean i loved it and i climbed up on the stool had no idea what to order you know and i watched what these women ordered and they ordered beer in brown bottles not up to my standards baby <laughs> i'd seen enough movies that i knew you know rita hayworth that's who i wanted to be uh didn't drink out of that So I looked around quick. I covered. You know, I don't want anybody to know I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, but I don't want you to know I don't know it. And uh, I looked down to the end of the bar, and there's a big tall glass there. Looked elegant to where I'd come from. Had a lot of stuff falling out of it. You know, little men with hats on and straws and umbrellas and bananas and shit. And uh, I looked down there, and I said, I'll have one of those. And I did. I had nine of those that night. <laughs> I know I had nine of them. I drank it because it tasted good. I loved it. And I drank it because I loved being in that bar. But most of all, I drank it because the effect it had on me. It was great. You know, I wore bib overalls. i got to want to stay sober a lot to tell you the truth. I wore bib overalls. I was six feet tall by the time I was 13 years old, and I wore Aunt Merle's hand-me-down shoes. Uh, I was born with a big red birthmark on the right-hand side of my face, and up in Tonga, we didn't know about Estee Lauder. We do today, thank God. Don't turn the heat on. My face will melt, run all over my shoes. So uh, I felt awkward, and I looked funny, and I felt funny, and I wore those. You know, they didn't make Jordache overalls then. And uh, and I was tall, and uh, if I raised my arms, I thought, 
we know what to call that today. I raise my arms a lot sometimes because uh, I was tall and those pants didn't fit right, and I couldn't keep that bib, you know, between these two things. And I felt awkward, and I was afraid of my birthmark, and I, and I wanted to be something I wasn't. I wanted to be what you guys looked like. You know, I wanted to feel like you looked, and I didn't. And I'll tell you, when I sucked up those things that night, I was what I wanted to be. I drank for that elusive feeling, that feeling that, hey, there are no rocks at this fair. You don't like these overalls? You don't like where I came from? You know, you don't like this birthmark? Just remember to bury me face down so you can always kiss my ass. Because that's how, that's how alcohol made me feel. The fear left. The, the need for approval left. And I felt good. And I drank a long time. The next Monday morning I was told uh, about that night. Because somewhere in those little drinky poos, I wasn't counting, you know. I didn't have to count. There came a time when I had to count and switch and decide, you know, Jesus, I, maybe I ought to quit drinking martinis because they make me undress publicly. <laughs> maybe I'll drink, uh, oh yeah, undress, get wrapped up in the checkered tablecloth, and they throw you in the parking lot, the cops don't want you. What are they going to do with a woman my size, drunk, wrapped up in a table? They don't know what to do, and they throw you back in. The bartender puts you in the pantry. You know, there's a pantry everywhere where they keep the onions and the soda and the potatoes, and he props you in there because you're a big package, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and he locks the door. That's the kind of drunk I was. So I went to Scotch. I thought business people drink Scotch and they don't they don't undress publicly. I'll drink Scotch. Seemed right up here. And uh, that's what I did. It was five scotches. Three martinis, five I undressed. That's all. Sometimes six scotches you say something to me and you hurt my feelings. And I hit you. I hit you with the bar stool. I never knew what was going to happen when I drank, and I never cared. You know, I hear a lot of people say, I never knew what I didn't want to do those things. I didn't care. I wanted that feeling. I wanted to be taken out of this world that I just thought sucked, and this world I didn't understand, and these people that didn't really do it right, and that didn't understand me. Me. My feelings, my needs, my demands, my expectations. And when I drank, that didn't matter. If I didn't like it, I just did you. <laughs> well, I left. I found romance in bars. I loved bars. I found romance there. You know, it's hard to be a British war widow one night and a movie producer the next, but I could be anything I wanted to in a bar. <laughs> and you can forget it in five minutes on the way to the parking lot. No commitment. You know, I loved that. Loved it. Sometimes it wasn't always like that. Sometimes I'd charm some little fellow and the lights would come on and I'd take him to the parking lot and put him in the back seat of my Oldsmobile. We'd live deeply. And then I'd dump him on the parking lot and go home to a husband that was a good man who wasn't an alcoholic. I'd only stop there, you know, to just to have a couple of shooters and relax. See, uh, I made it big 
I made it big, you know. I, I, uh, I got, I got a few breaks and some luck, and a little bit of talent, and I got all those things that were gonna make it right. You know, uh, I worked in the recording industry and the film industry, and I got to know the right people and got to know the powerful people and the stars, and I made a lot of money and I lived in the right place had my legs waxed by the right person, my eyelashes glued on one at a time, no more strips, and uh, wore those $500 blouses and those $1,000 suits, and I never had to wear overalls again, and Aunt Merle's hand-me-down shoes, I had my shoes made, and I met a good man and married him, but uh, I couldn't relate to that man like I had no idea what intimacy was till I got sober. I didn't know how, you know, to make a friend, to be a woman, to be what I wanted to be more than anything in the world. I wanted to be a woman. I wanted to feel like a woman. I wanted to be a wife and a good mother. I wanted love. And my idea of love was not real either. I found that here. But uh, that marriage didn't go too well. Uh, and, I, you know, it was I didn't get married when I was 19. I was busy out there making money and flying in airplanes and then up the wrong airport and, you know, being important and riding in limousines and getting locked in the trunk by the driver. Uh, I used to think they gave me a limousine where I worked because I was important. When I got sober and had to make some amends, I found out they gave me a limousine because they didn't want my car. I parked my car in the lounge, you know. I What do you mean a parking lot? Get away from me. I don't give anybody my keys. I don't care if you're a valet or not. I don't want to walk a block. I just parked it anywhere. So, they, you know, the company I worked for, they didn't want bad PR. So they just got me a driver. But uh, coming home from those bars, you know, I, I'd go to that studio and I'd work hard. I had help, too. I needed it. I took a little Dexamil. Made <laughs> <laughs> little white things in the corner of my mouth. Made me totally in charge. Got me over my hangovers, bad hangovers, and gave me the energy I needed to be important. Takes a lot of energy to be important. A lot of energy, more than I had sometimes. And uh, so I took those little green and white things, lots of them. And by the end of the day, uh, I quit drinking at lunch. Uh, I always ended up with some saxophone player, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, something else you can know, saxophone players and keyboard arrangers never have cars. So, uh, you know, when I was through up there, I was whirring around in this poison ivy trying to find a phone to get back down there. So I quit drinking at lunch because I was an important executive in the recording business and I hate poison ivy and I hate, you know, ending up in the hills. No way down. So I, I, and I knew that I couldn't keep the job and make the money and be important if I drank at lunch. And by the end of the day in that recording studio, uh, I needed a little something to get me home to that husband. So I could be the woman that I know knew, you know, I knew he wanted. So that I could feel that way. So that I wouldn't be afraid. 
so that I could feel like I was worth it and feel like I was attractive. The fact that I didn't act that way never occurred to me. And I'd stop just to have a couple of shooters and it'd be two o'clock in the morning and I ended up with some yo-yo in the backseat of my car and I'd dump him out and I'd go home. Three or four in the morning, you know, my garter belt, my pantyhose hanging over the rearview mirror, trying to find my wiglet, you know, it's hanging on me like a big mole. Trying to find my shoe. I mean, could he eat a shoe? What do you do with a shoe? Maybe he's got a fetish. One shoe, no shoe. And I'm driving home to a man who loved me, who went to work every day. A professional man, somebody I thought could make me feel respectable. See, it's all about what I felt instead of what I did. There's a big section in that big book says how it works and then into action. Uh, in that marriage, as a direct result, you know, I'd come home from those bars and I'd, I'd be driving in that driveway with one eye. You're not drunk and you're not sober after rousting around, you know, and uh, you're trying to get in there. And I can remember thinking a thousand times, you know, looking like I do with the eyelashes. They look like feathers all stuck on my face and my hair all screwed up, my makeup smeared, and my, you know, driving in that driveway and thinking, I hope he doesn't notice. You know, I really thought that. That story about the jaywalker, same thing. I hope he doesn't notice. Maybe this time, you know. <clears throat> that marriage lasted nine and a half years as a direct result of my drinking. Uh, I killed my child, our child. And as a direct result of my drinking, I later lost the capacity to ever have another child. My husband did not ask me to leave because of that. He asked me to leave because he couldn't live with me the way I was. And we didn't know that there's a disease called alcoholism. And uh, I didn't know I had it. And uh, so he asked me to leave and I left. I was full of fear and anger and, uh, and I didn't know what to do and I couldn't stop drinking. And the answer, same answer, came to me. Well, I guess now I'll just uh, go out there and, uh, and make it work. You know, I'll make enough money and I'll go to Paris and Saudi Arabia. Thank you, God, I'm not there today. They're weird. Uh, and I did. And I'll work for the royalty and uh, I'll build houses and I'll find him and recreate him, you know, get him the right bathrobe and the right shaving lotion and tell him how it really is. All of my men, like, disappear, you know. You can only take so much of a drunk like me, and they're gone. I never had big breakups. I had disappearances. What do you mean he doesn't work there anymore? <laughs> really? You know, gone. Because I'm a drunk. Selfishness? and self-centeredness that we think is the root of my problem. I had a great capacity for alcohol. I could drink and drive you home. I got tickets and blackouts uh, and signed them, and they never arrested me. I did spend a lot of time in jail because I argued with cops. I don't know about down here, but at the LAPD and the sheriff's, sheriff's department don't like you when you argue with them. My line was, I'm a native Californian. What the hell do you mean you're going to give me a goddamn ticket? And uh, they'll listen to that for about half a second. And then, you know, 
you're down at the Hollywood Station or at Civil Brand, and I've been to both places for fighting <laughs> with police, trying to convince them they're full of it. Um, I started to change things, you know, my hair and uh, the color of it and uh, my makeup and uh, where I lived and who I saw and where I drank. And uh, I went up to Esalon and ate bean sprouts and I uh, floated in the hot tubs and uh, ate brown bread and uh, talked to a chair. And then I put the problem in the chair and talked to the problem. And then I became the problem. <laughs> and then I beat the sand with a baseball bat to relieve the tension. And, you know, I got to looking around at these people. I paid $10,000 for that. I got to looking around at these people. I thought, these people are getting centered. You know, they're deep breathing and meditating and eating its grass and, and uh, you know, and all of this healthy food and they're centered and they're floating in those hot tubs and when they look out at that ocean, why is it they look fine and I think, I need a drink. Now, I'm not going to pay somebody $10,000 and not get my money's worth. So uh, I thought, well, I need a little something to help me get centered. So uh, in my white toga, we wore white togas and uh, little flowers tied in my hair, barefoot. I drove down to that little market on Highway 1, and I got me something to center me. You know, I went in there in that outfit, and that little, the granddaddy of all hippies is there with a the little glass down. He, I said, see that bottle? I want that bottle of whiskey up there. Oh, he says, you know, they don't do that up there. I said, you're telling me? What do you think I'm here in this funny outfit for? Give me the bottle! For my unicorn, you know, just they're, they're mystical up there. Just give me the bottle. Medicinal. And I got centered. I was one of the best students up there. I was half swacked through the whole thing. That didn't help me either, and neither did the psychiatrist that I went to. There were eight of them. I never told them the truth. I went to bed with my first psychiatrist. Thought we'd get right to the root of the problem there, you know. And then I would show up later drunk, unexpected, no appointment, right? He got rid of me. I, uh, I did a lot of stuff that I thought was living and that I thought would change how I was. Before I tell you how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I promised a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous that I had coffee with today. And I, I always do it, and I forgot to do it today. I tell you when I got sober. See, I would love to stand up here and have you believe, you know, that I'm more sober than I am. I look old enough to have made coffee with Bill Wilson, <laughs> but I didn't. I got sober June the 23rd, 1983. And I got sober in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want you to know that. I was talking somewhere not long ago, and a guy came up to me after the talk, and he says, you know, I'm 11 months sober, and, and I'm sure glad you said you got sober in your first meeting, because uh, the guys I came in with all keep leaving, you know, and I, I'm the only one here, and I thought there was something wrong with me. When you get here, like it says in the book, this is how we recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That's what it says on the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
The next 164 pages are the instructions. You know, the steps say that they're great, you know, and they make it spell good and like we're going to be real spiritual and wonderful. But the, we miss the instructions. The instructions are in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I found them. That is my experience. I got sober June the 23rd, 1983 in West Los Angeles at the Ohio Street Clubhouse. And uh, when I, 1961, when I was driving down uh, the Hollywood Freeway on the way to a performance, I was drunk. I used to fight with cops and get thrown in jail, so I hired an attorney to go with me wherever I went. So I wouldn't get thrown in jail. He drank like I drank. Everybody had to that I had around me. And I had an astrologer that went everywhere with me because I couldn't make a decision sometimes. And I had to, if I didn't have anything else to blame, I blamed his reading of my chart because I sure as hell didn't want responsibility. I was full of fear and I did not want the responsibility of anything going wrong. So Stanley, my astrologer, and I, and my lawyer are driving down the Hollywood Freeway, and I'm drunk, and we're going to a performance, and, uh, you know, I need to feel important, because I need to have people think I am, because inside I feel so nothing, so afraid. And I looked up, it's when they, uh, 1961, it's when they were put, just putting the signs up on the freeways that tell you where you are, like Los Velas. Coenga. And I looked up and I said, you know, Phyllis Irene Krabby just doesn't cut it. What do you think about Coenga? What are those guys going to say? Stanley, I buy his vegetables and his tie stick, and he lives over my garage, and uh, this, this drunk lawyer needs the regainer. They said, that's great. And three weeks later, I came off a drunk, and uh, my name was Coenga. And uh, that is a part of the wreckage of my past. That's right. Another thing I want to tell you is there are no ages in Alcoholics Anonymous. No ages, no color, no nothing. And I'll tell you that because I got sober when I was 50 years old. I became the spike volleyball player in a group that shall remain nameless. That's where I got sober. They taught me how to play volleyball. Hell, if you don't play it at a bar, I don't know what it is. And uh, 150 sober alcoholics watched me for eight months raise my arms after the ball hit the wall. You know, I just wasn't tied together. I couldn't hit a bull in the ass with a handful of rice. And, uh, and then they'd say, okay, Coenga, just go to the next position. When I was eight months sober, I got pissed off. <laughs> I got angry, as we say now. And uh, I spiked, man. I reached up. Some one of those women said something that pissed me off. And I reached up and I spiked that ball. And uh, 75 sober women stopped the game, the game that never stops. You know, and uh, and hugged me and loved me. Took my picture. Eight months. They say we're not patient. 
They say we don't know what love is. We learn it here. We have it. We just got to believe. You know, that's where it comes from in me and most of the people I know. We got to believe. Our hearts got to be tied into it. I had enough theory and philosophy out there. I, I slept with psychiatrists. I thought maybe to rub off. You know, the, and I knew a lot of, of, of learned people. It can't be theory for me or philosophy. It's got to be in my heart right here. I got to believe in it. I got to feel it and I got to do it. That's the way I find a lot of my friends and some of the people I sponsor. On uh, June the 23rd, 1983, I wasn't living the high life anymore. Uh, I'd seen my last psychiatrist about eight months before that. And uh, I couldn't function anymore and I didn't know it. I had a house in Bel Air that I couldn't get into or out of. I'd go up to the front door and I was so damned afraid that I couldn't go in. And if I got in, I couldn't get out. And so uh, I started living in my car with two dogs and a Siamese cat. And uh, I wanted to be a bag lady. There's nothing dramatic about it. Nothing. It was a relief. Because I couldn't do that little stuff anymore. You know, like take a bath or uh, like go to the bank or answer the telephone when the bill was paid or drive a car very far or get dressed, you know. Underwear had become very complicated. I remember that. And uh, it was a relief to go down there on Venice Beach. I, I lived uh, behind a dumpster there at Rose and Oceanfront Walk in Venice. I'd been there about eight months, and uh, I woke up one morning. And, uh, you know, I never thought beer or wine was alcohol. I thought you drank beer in the morning, Dos Equis, you know, just to get you, put the fire out and get you centered, as we say. <coughs> and uh, I thought you drank wine in the better restaurants and hotels when you had to eat fish. I hate fish, less the lobster, and to look good. But I never thought they were alcohol. My last drink, I don't want to forget it, was uh, red bulk wine. I had been stealing uh, from the store there at the corner to feed my dogs and my cat, and, uh, and I couldn't get enough to drink unless I waited for somebody to pass out down there, and I'd take their bottle. Or I'd con somebody down at Nick's in at the corner, around the corner, to buy me a drink or to take me to the grog shop and the little liquor store there at Navy and Pacific and maybe buy me a couple of beers or some wine. And that was okay with me because I needed it. I needed it. I just needed it physically. On June the 23rd, I woke up one morning and I had had a bad day out trying to panhandle. I was, you know, there's an art to panhandling. I had done a lot of stuff in my life. Uh, but I didn't know how to panhandle. Uh, you know, and I needed money. I, I, I would, uh, go up to people, you know, and lay the trip on them that I'd you know, and they'd give me a dollar, and I'd say, a dollar? 
Where the hell are you from, Iowa? Not to offend anyone from Iowa. My, my sponsor was from Iowa. But I mean, a doll, you know. And uh, you don't make a lot of money that way. Uh, I uh, believe that I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I hear people say, well, if you don't remember your last drunk, you won't stay sober. Bullshit. How are you going to remember your last drunk when you were in a blackout? But I remember coming off it, and it was sometime I had my last drink, sometime around midnight or before June the 23rd, June the 22nd. My sponsor was very specific about that when I got here. We really worked at that. The most, the one thing I had to tell you that was honest and true, and that I became proud to be able to say, was my sobriety date. I know when I got sober. Because my life began, I didn't know that then. But I'm careful. That's when I got sober. I woke up that morning sometime early in the morning and I was scared to death. I, I have known fear all my life. Uh, the book tells me about it, things, feelings I had before that I thought were inferiority were fear. It ran through my life like a thread. And that morning it was the worst I hope I ever feel. It felt like uh, I just stepped out of the 23rd floor of this north tower over here. Just stepped out. You know, without a parachute, without a net. It was, that's what I felt like in my gut. So a woman like me, uh, a thought came to me, and uh, I believe for me today that the message comes the way the message comes. The way it comes, you know. Gabriel doesn't always, you know, land on the end of your bed or... Somebody in a hospital doesn't, you know, you know, make you feel wonderful. The message comes, and I thank God that I got the message at all. I had never darkened the door of an AA meeting. I had no idea what they did. I thought, how many could there be? Thirty, maybe, in the United States. I mean, who the hell would go to one of those? And these guys, I thought maybe these guys, you know, that I drank with down in those kiosks in Venice Beach, with this stuff running down their lip and the pea coats on in August. I thought, well, they'd probably go there and get straightened out a little. You know, what do I know? But I don't go there. Because life's not worth living if I can't drink. I can't do anything without a drink. The real people drink. They know what's happening. That morning, uh, sitting in that car shaking and sweating and scared, all I was was scared. I wasn't puking. I often did that. The thought came to me, maybe if you went to Alcoholics Anonymous, you could learn to panhandle. Up here in the birdcage. What a song. What a song. Hey, you know from uh, the, the, the Ohio Street Clubhouse. I lived in Beverly Hills and passed. I'm a native Californian. It took me from that morning until about 8 o'clock that night to get to that clubhouse. I didn't make a call and I didn't ask anybody. I have to believe that a power greater than I took me to that clubhouse. For years I had driven down Sepulveda from Bel Air and looked over. I had to make a stop. Sometimes I made the stop. Sometimes I didn't. 
And uh, there was one at Sepulveda, Ohio, and I'd look over and I'd see this little yellow house, no marquees, no ads, no nothing, and I'd see these people around there and I'd think, what are they? They don't look like Kiwanis, you know, there's women there. They look different, and then I'd hit it, you know, and split. That morning I, I don't know how I knew. I do know how I knew. I believe in God, and I believe in the power that guides my life today. I found it here, and uh, that's what took me to, I knew where to go. Took me all day to get there. I couldn't figure out where the hell I was, but I got there. And I got there in a pair of black pajama bottoms, urine soaked. Now, I spent a lot of time looking good. You know, this was black uh, jersey pajama bottoms, urine soaked in a blouse, no buttons on it, one button. And I had somehow managed to get all the other buttonholes up on that one button. I wanted to look good. And uh, it's been a long time, you know. No underwear. Like I said, it had gotten too complicated. And uh, a pair of high heels, you know, with the kind where your toes hang out the front. And I had lost somewhere along the way the heel off of one of them. And I was trying to walk like you wouldn't notice it. I had 11 teeth when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't realize it. I just knew I had to be careful when I smiled. I smiled rarely. Uh, you know, where's the spot? Uh, let's see. And I was dying of a disease of alcoholism, and I didn't know it. A hand came out to me at that meeting, looking like I did and smelling like I did and being like I was. It's been a long time since I had bathed or done the things that we do, just normal people do. And I was full of fear and full of anger, and I knew nothing was going to change. Don't give me that, because I tried it all, you know. I've done the self-help books and frozen my ass off and asked and floated in the hot tubs at Esalon and tied ribbons in the hair of the Maharishi, that oily little sucker, and uh, given him plenty of money for luck, and uh, gone to the detox, the... L.A. County detox, and they keep kicking my ass out of there because I get upset when I have to wait. And uh, I didn't, you know, don't tell me you got something here. Just let me find the bag ladies and the people who know how to panhandle. That was June the 23rd, 1983. You know, it says in the third step prayer that I may bear witness. I was told what bearing witness is. It's living and being an example. And that's why I'm here today. I got sober on the experience, not the theory. The experience, the strength, and the hope of other people just like me. Nobody said to me when I got here, Oh, now just sit down here, your turn's the inward. You're so, you know, you're so afraid, upset, and your head's not clear. Just have a couple of chocolate cookies and a cup of coffee, and when you're feeling better, <laughs> we'll start to look at the book. 
We'll give you a little neck rub. Nobody said that to me, thank God. The first thing I heard in that meeting, and it was really after the meeting, because when I got in there I thought, this is wrong. You know that feeling you get when you've made a really severe error? You think, oh, whenever these people start dancing together, I'll split. But if I move too fast, I'll call a cop. One of the guys in my group, Jimmy P, had about 20 minutes more sobriety than me. He was a lawyer, you know. But he had on a $3,000 suit. His face was on fire. His eyes were going around. He was sweating, but he looked good. He came up to me, you know. He's got, we share the same sobriety. He came up to me and he says, I'm standing in the middle of that room, you know, looking funny, trust me. And he says, are you an alcoholic? You know, I'd rather be anything than an alcoholic. I mean, I've got to tell somebody that kind of... And I knew that wasn't what was wrong anyway. I knew there was something so wrong inside of me that a few shooters isn't going to hurt, you know? And I looked at him and I said, No, I'm not. Get away from me. Get away from me, risky little sucker. And uh, I said, I'm here to learn to be a bag lady. And uh, he shot right out the door to the old-timers there in the parking lot. You know, and he says, there's a woman in there that's really weird. Yeah. And uh, she's not an alcoholic. <laughs> she says she's here to learn to be a bag lady. And a woman who was my sponsor for six and a half years uh, said, look, Jimbo, why don't you just let her stay there and uh, after the meeting uh, bring her to me. See, that's what we do here. That's what we do here. We, uh, we go to one another in search of a power, in search of a God that can solve our problem and that can let us live, live sober, happy, joyous, and free. I can't tell you what it feels like not having to be somebody I'm not. I pretended so long that those steps peeled away, finally a little at a time, the pretense. And it keeps peeling away. And the energy that I used to spend trying to be important and be somebody I wasn't because I was so afraid is spent today driving to San Diego from L.A. in rooms. We're, I mean, a bunch of people like us, look at this room. You must be joking. And there's a guy out there can't leave me alone. You got enough towels, are you happy, you know, what do you need? It's been a long time since anybody did that to me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. The thing I heard at my first meeting was not about chocolate cookies and getting a neck rub and loving, uh, you know, you love me or whatever the hell it is. What I heard, what I heard was this woman came up to me after the meeting and she said, uh, my name is Marianne, here's my phone number. And I said, well, something happened in that meeting. I go to a lot of meetings and I believe something happens. And if I knew what it was, you know, I'd tell you. But something happens. It's happening here, right now. It happens in every meeting of alcoholics and us. 
every meeting is happening right here in us in us and to us I said when you start to feel better that's a little humility for a sick boy like me that came into AA the way I did and she said I can't tell you exactly when but I can promise you I can now I the word promise I never kept one in my life but I sure held kept you to yours I can promise you this that if you meet me at a meeting tomorrow night you'll feel some better things will be some better I said tomorrow night I mean give me a break maybe once a month right and I told her that I said tomorrow night 15 years sober over through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and meetings and working with newcomers and having fun and living sober applying those steps to her life and giving her experience to others she said to me look why don't you get your head out of your ass I'm not the spiritual speaker <laughs> you can tell <laughs> those are the words I heard at that meeting now somebody talked and somebody shared and somebody read the big book and somebody did all this toward the cost but the words I heard were why don't you get your head out of your ass and meet me at a meeting tomorrow night because I believe you are an alcoholic woman and you've got a choice you can tap that back out there in that little outfit you got on <laughs> and you're not going to die right away you're just going to keep happening the way it's happening and it's just going to get worse or maybe you can stay here with us just maybe you can stay here with us maybe if you're willing to do a few things and your whole life will change I went to that next meeting because I thought I'm going to find that bitch and show her thank God thank God she led the way and I followed I was a dropout I had parents that hadn't seen me in 13 years I had to work those steps I had to get into them I had to make decisions on the first three I had to sit in meetings and listen one night when I was about three weeks sober I'll tell you about my experience with the second step I was three months sober and my sponsor who I was terrified of you know she's a little thing talks like a tip I can big me big pet I was terrified of her and uh, she walked up to me and she says how sober are you I said 90 days she said why are you sober and I said because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous she said bullshit <laughs> she said what are you doing different what are you doing different she, I said, well, I don't know. She said, that, well, are you dieting? I said, no. She said, are you going to work regularly? I said, no. But she says, what are you doing? And you know, you hear it around AA. Pray in the morning and pray at night. Thank him in the morning and thank him at night. Now, uh, the God I knew, I was just, you know, I just didn't forget he existed the one I thought I knew 
And I said, well, I'm saying those funny prayers you told me to say. She said, would you concede to me that a God you don't even believe in has kept a woman like you sober for 90 days? And my experience with the third step was I was told, you better think about it. And then we're going to get down on our knees and take that third step. And don't take it if you don't mean it. Because uh, your whole life is going to change. I was scared to death. I said, uh, if I take that step, uh, I don't know who I'm going to be. I don't know what's going to happen. And my sponsor said, that's right. And you got to be willing to go on to the next. But look around the meetings and look that you haven't, you haven't had a drink. You haven't had to sleep on the streets or live in your car. The women of Alcoholics Anonymous bathed me and cut those tangles out of my hair and put a clean bag on me. And the men of Alcoholics Anonymous treated me like a lady until I understood how to be one. Are you willing to make the decision? Through the steps, I found my parents. It took me a year. And through the steps, I have made an amends to those people and many others. And through the steps, I have found a power in my life. That power is God. And I live a brand new life. And I came here to show you that. To show you and to thank you. You took a 50-year-old woman and made her look like me and be like me and love like me and live like me. They'd never believe it at the Beverly Hills Women's Club because they don't believe in miracles. We rely on them. Let's go out there today and live. When we leave here and for all the rest of this 24-hour period, live. We have recovered. And we're here to live and to have fun and to be who we are and not to have to make any more nickel and dime compromises. And we have each other to begin to do that with and to carry it out into the world. That's the message I bring you. You can have more than a whole loaf. All you got to do is read the instructions and participate vigorously in the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.